We're going to be in Joshua chapter 9 this evening as we continue studying uh, this book of Joshua. Of course, uh, again, our children are uh, doing this for Last Leaders as their theme, uh, the book of Joshua. And so we're kind of going along the book as they are studying it, although I think they're a couple of chapters ahead of us. But uh, hopefully we can catch up to them. Uh, But we're going to be again in Joshua chapter 9. You know, my, my kids know this, that one of the things that, you know, I like to do before I fall asleep at night is, you know, I turn on the Andy Griffith Show. You know, I, I think a lot of you uh, watch that show and enjoy that show. And one of my favorite episodes is, uh, is, is entitled Barney's First Car. Uh, this was made in 1963. So, you know, obviously it's got some age to it. Uh, but in this uh, episode, Barney Fife... Uh, he decided to pur- purchase his very first car, and he, he finds an ad in the paper, uh, and he withdraws all his money in his savings account. I think it was close to three hundred dollars, uh, and he uh, invites this little old lady to come and show him this nineteen fifty four Ford that uh, you know she told him that this was her husband's who had just passed away. And so, uh, you know, she brings it to him. They, they look it over. Uh, she tells him that it was driven only at low speeds and it was driven only on Sundays. And, you know, it breaks her heart to have to sell it. Uh, Andy, of course, he's there and he advises Barney to, you know, make sure the mechanic checks it out and takes a peek at it. But, you know, Barney won't have it, you know, and he, he just feels so much for this lady. He even, he, he even overpays for the vehicle. Well, of course, what you would expect the next day is they go for a ride, uh, Barney and his girl, and Andy with his girl. Uh, the vehicle doesn't work, and uh, they bring it into Gomer. You remember Gomer, and he looks it over, and he brings back this whole laundry list of things wrong with the vehicle. It was a mile-long list, and then he says at the end that it even had sawdust in the transmission. And, of course, Andy says, you know, that's the oldest car hustler's trick in the book. You know, they were sold a lemon, or Barney was sold a lemon, and, and they come to find out that this woman and her, her, her sons and their gang of people were, were operating an illegal chop shop, and uh, they were in the business of deception. You know, Barney was deceived. Have you ever had a deal go bad? You know, maybe something uh, that you wish you would have never had done. You know, I can think of a time or two where maybe a little research on my end uh, would have advised me, you know, maybe not to purchase a certain product or, or maybe not to hire a certain company. You know, sometimes things can be too good to be true. And we let down our defenses and we just go ahead with it and we make those deals. And uh, sometimes they're bad deals and sometimes we have a price to pay. So again, Joshua chapter 9, uh, you know, Israel, of course, they're doing what God has commanded them to doing. That's what this whole book of Joshua is about. The theme of this book is conquering. Of course, uh, in chapter 6, they take out the great city of Jericho. In chapter 7, uh, they have trouble with AI. Uh, but of course, uh, in chapter 8, uh, they get rid of that sin that was in the camp uh, that Achan had uh, that Achan taken place by stealing those things that were under the ban. And in, and in Joshua chapter 8, uh, they rout AI. You know, God was with them once again. Well, look at Joshua chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says, Now it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country and in the lowland, and on all the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard of it, they had gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. 
We see that the people of the land, uh, they are wanting to basically gang up on Joshua and Israel. They decide, you know, it's, it's no longer for us to sit here on the defense and get picked off one by one, but let's, let's you know, tag team, let, let's join forces, and let's go after uh, Israel. Now, before we move on a little bit further into uh, this account, I want to say one thing of this. You know, there, there's a lot of uh, times people will bring up, you know, accounts like this in the Old Testament of where, uh, you know, Israel is going into a land and he's going to, you know, utterly destroy the people of that land. Well, notice with me, uh, if you would, in, jo- in Deuteronomy chapter 20. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, uh, starting in verse 16, notice what God says specifically about the people of this land, the people of the land of Canaan. In Deuteronomy 20, starting verse 16, it says, Only in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite and the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may not, so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods, so that they would sin against the Lord your God. Again, why would God want these people destroyed, uh, these people living in the land, even the women and the children? You know, God is long-suffering. We, we know that, um, but he's not eternal suffering. We, we see his patience ended in the days of Noah when he brought the great fl- flood upon the earth. We see his patience ending when he brought uh, fire and brimstone from heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're seeing the same thing here in the land of Canaan, that, that his patience, his long suffering is coming to an end for the people of this land, a people that he refers to in Deuteronomy chapter 20 as detestable, detestable. Right? They're not innocent. They, they're worshiping these false gods. They're doing things that they ought not to do. Well, as the people gang up, as they decide to take on Israel as a united force, verses uh, 3 through 15, we we see this group of individuals who are living in the land known as the Gibeonites. It says there in verse 4 that they acted craftily. Uh, Instead of going to war with Israel, they had a different plan. They planned to join them, right? Uh, You know, the old saying, if you can't beat them, join them. Uh, That's what the Gibeonites decided to do. And so what they did is they depicted themselves as coming from a faraway land, right? They they found some worn out luggage, uh, clothing with holes in it, sandals uh, that were worn out. Their wineskins were dried up. Uh, they, They brought old and crumbly up stale bread with them. This really this well thought out scheme to make it appear that they had come from a long journey. And they come to Joshua and Israel and they say, we want to make a covenant with you. Joshua, we, we've heard of the fame of your Lord. We've heard of the great things that he has done. And we don't want to uh, end up uh, dying at your hands. So we want to make a covenant with you. Look at verse 14, because this is really the key verse of this chapter. Joshua chapter 9, verse 14. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. 
You know, just like when they went up against the AI the first time, we saw that they didn't uh, go to God and ask him what they would, should do. And that's the same thing is happening here. They don't ask God for any counsel as these Gibeonites come to speak to them, but they go ahead and make a covenant with them. It's interesting because if you back up to verse 7, they were suspicious about this. Look at verse 7. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you are living within our land. How then shall we make a covenant with you? They were suspicious of these individuals, but they didn't do a full background check, you know, to make sure that they were who they said they were. And so Joshua made that covenant with them and allowed them to live. Well, verses 16 through 27, we find out that, you know, it only takes about three days and word gets back to Israel that they had been had. They had been deceived. Uh, And so they go and they march to the the cities of the Gibeonites and they investigate uh, if they really did live in the land. And it was that they did. They, They were living in that land. But because of that, because of the great oath that Joshua and the Israelites made, they couldn't strike them down. You know, and we're told that the Israelite army, they're upset because of this, because their leaders uh, had made this, this covenant with them. Because remember, God told them that they were to utterly destroy all the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. And although they didn't fight uh, Israel, but rather uh, deceived them, you know, let's not think of the Gibeonites as a weak people. Because actually, when you get into chapter 10 of Joshua, verse 2 specifically says that all the men of Gibeon were mighty warriors. And matter of fact, it also said that the other kings of the land of Canaan feared Israel even more because now the Gibeonites were in subjection to the Israelites. Again, these mighty warriors. But instead of killing them, Israel forced them uh, into manual labor. They made them servants. We're told they're, they're now going to be hewers of wood. You know, they're going to chop up the wood for the Israelite people, and they're going to be drawers of water. They're going to carry the water uh, from the rivers uh, to uh, the Israelite camps. Joshua places this curse among them for their deception. Look at verse 23. It says, Now therefore you are cursed, and you shall never cease being slaves, both hewers of wood and jars of water for the house of my God. See, they, the, the Gibeonites go on to explain their deception, why they, they chose to do this. And that was because, again, they feared greatly for their lives, uh, hearing all about the commandments that God had made to Moses. And this was an act of self-preservation. And as godly and as worldly as we see these individuals were, uh, they were willing to lie and to deceive to achieve, achieve it. And so, again, you know, going back to verse 14 of this chapter, Israel uh, did not appeal to God for this great decision. And they're later going to regret it. You know, we can learn a lot from the, the mistakes and from the successes of God's people in the past. Of course, Romans 15 verse 4 tells us for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Right? These things were written down for us to learn from. And so the Israelites' dealings with, with the Gibeonites, they're going to remind us of a couple of things. And I'm just going to make a few points here this evening. Uh, the first one being that deception is a tool of Satan. Uh, notice again in verse 4, in my translation, it says uh, about the Gibeonites is that they also acted craftily. Well, maybe your translation says cunning. Uh, I like the King James Version. It says they did work wilily. Wilily. They worked wilily. 
You know, uh, you can think of, you know, what that kind of sounds like. You know, have you ever seen, you know, an old Bugs Bunny cartoon? You know, you got the Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote. And what was Wiley Coyote always up to? He was always up to uh, deception. He was, you know, painting those fake walls on caves and trying to get the Roadrunner in any possible way. He was always scheming. Uh, he was cunning, right? Uh, he was he was Wiley. And we know that uh, in Scripture that uh, Satan is referred to as the great deceiver, the one who deceives the whole world. You know, in Genesis chapter 3, and we'll be here in a minute, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it told us uh, about Satan, that when uh, he appeared as the serpent to Adam and Eve, it said the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. Uh, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verse 3 in particular, he said, uh, reaffirming this thought, he said that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, right? He is a crafty uh, individual. In 2 Corinthians, in that same chapter, in verses uh, 14 and 15, it talks about how Satan and his servants can disguise themselves as angels of light, right? That's, you know, the ultimate form, a uh, level of deception, you know, because things aren't always as they seem. You know, think about this. If Satan appeared as, uh, you know, how we see him on television shows depicted or in movies as this, you know, this big red monster with a pitchfork and, you know, horns and that type of thing, no one would want to follow him, right? We would be totally afraid to do that. Uh, But that's why, you know, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, you know, he told them to beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves, right? And we've got to uh, be able to discern between the sheep and the wolves because uh, the wolf is crafty. He, he is cunning. Uh, but, of course, then Jesus goes on in those verses to tell us that uh, we can know them by their fruits. But the Gibeonites, you know, if you read this chapter, and I encourage you to go back and reread it, the Gibeonites, they go all out to appear uh, the opposite of what they were, or who they were. This was well thought out. They put great detail and attention, you know, down to the food that they brought being crusty and moldy. And many a times we, too, are deceived by our enemy, Satan, the same way. You know, I think about, you know, if we have, you know, a, a rodent problem in our home, maybe, you know, there's a couple of ways we can go about getting rid of that rodent. We could simply set a cage out and hope that, uh, you know, the rodent will somehow walk in and get caught, or we could put a cage out and maybe bait it, you know, maybe put some peanut butter on the bars so that, you know, it'll walk in, it'll draw its attention. We're being a little bit crafty and deceiving it to come in. Well, again, I mentioned Genesis chapter 3. Of course, this is Adam and Eve and the serpent and we don't have to read far. Again, we don't have to read far into Scripture to find Satan's tactic at work, at hand. Uh, notice in chapter 3, starting in verse 1, uh, God, or excuse me, Satan says to Eve, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Is that what God said to you? You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? But, but uh, of course, God never said that. Because if we went back into chapter 2, verses 16 and 17... Uh, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. He didn't say don't eat from any of the trees, but he said this one specific tree, don't eat from it. You know, he's sowing the seed of doubt in their minds, in Eve's mind. 
Notice verse 2 and 3, because Eve responds and she says, no, no, we can't eat the fruit of the trees except for, again, this tree, which is in the middle of the garden. And if we eat from that one, that's the one, or touch it, we shall surely die. You remember what Satan replied with? You surely will not die. Right? He's exaggerating. He's contradicting the statements of God. You know, all he had to do was raise a little doubt in her head. Tell her some half-truths. Right? And now she's questioning herself. Now she is deceived. Because look at verse 6 in chapter 3. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Again, we see the deceiver of the whole world at work here. Uh, he didn't sit around waiting for Adam Eve to slip up and hope that they you know, ate from that tree. But he was active uh, in deceiving them to get them to sin. And, he, and so here's the point that you know, I want to make with this first point is that Satan is working in this world to deceive us. Right? It's not, he's not passive in this, but he is active. You know, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 describes him as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And that's why we are to be of sober spirit, why we are to be on guard, because he is looking for those to deceive. And Gibeonites, they took that, uh, that deception. Again, they, they, when they deceived Israel, they took it right to them. Right? They didn't wait for Israel to come to them, but they went they actively went to Israel and deceived them. And again, we must guard ourselves spiritually at all times. That's Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Again, the devil is scheming. He, he's crafty. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 27, Paul again says, you know, don't even give him an opportunity or, or a place as if he was in a pit and he has, you know, one hand uh, hanging on or maybe he's got one foot on, on, on the ledge there. It says, don't even give him that place. You know, just close it up. Uh, again, a deception is a tool of Satan and he is active in his pursuits. Uh, notice also, again, the, this is going back to Joshua chapter 9, verse 14, that counsel in God's word is expected. You know, Colossians 3.17 is one of those passages that, that's what we refer to as an authority passage. Uh, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And this was a huge, colossal mistake Israel made uh, this day when Joshua and the leaders did not seek the counsel from God. You know, again, they, they, uh, they started to suspect something there in verse 7, but they didn't investigate the matter further. Could they have had? Well, yes, of course. Uh, Joshua right there was, again, took over for Moses. And God spoke directly to Moses and God spoke directly to Joshua. The high priest would have been right there. He, He also could communicate to God as well. We sometimes will take other people's word for it rather than going to God's counsel. You know, we want to do God's will, but how much do we desire to know what God's will is? In Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 through 35, we didn't really study these passages too much when we looked at Joshua chapter 8. But in these passages, uh, we notice after they have victory over Ai, uh, Joshua and the people, they build an altar to the Lord. They offer sacrifices on it. And then verse 32 tells us that, that Joshua takes, us, takes some stones and he writes a copy of the law of Moses on it. 
uh, in the presence of the sons of Israel. Uh, This was, again, done in front of all the people. And then notice verses 34 and 35. Then afterwards, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, when the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. Did you notice that? He read all of those words in front of of the men and the women and the children and even the strangers of Israel. You know, they wanted to hear these words and Joshua uh, preached to them those words. You know, just imagine uh, this this evening, just imagine uh, this uh, building here this evening, you know, just every seat filled with individuals, with, with people, you know, on the side standing, maybe out in the foyer listening as well. Can you imagine that? Because that's kind of what is going on here in Israel. And in verse uh, uh, 33, actually, it talks about how there was half the people were standing on one side of the mountain and the other half of the people were standing on the other side of the mountain. And, and Joshua and the, the Ark of the Covenant are in the middle and they're all surrounded and they want to hear these words that Moses has to say. They want this counsel, right? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, uh, we know the Hebrews writer right there says, you know, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must be a rewarder of those who, who seek them. Again, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And, you know, and we, when we talk about faith, it's not a biblical, uh, biblical faith. It's not a mental assertion that, you know, yes, I believe in God, but biblical faith. Faith is a blending of our belief and our trust and our obedience that we'll do. We will we, have faith in God's word to do what he says to, to do. And that passage also says that he rewards those who seek him. Right? He's not rewarding those who just sit back and, and not pay attention to his word or don't, don't search his word. But he rewards those who seek him. Of course, Romans ten seventeen says our faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We need to hear the word of Christ. We need to read the word of Christ to build up that faith. You know, my, my, my children often watch this show uh, uh, that was called, like, Would You Rather? You know, I know there's a different game versions of that as well. You know, it was like they'd ask you, you know, would you rather live in a climate that's hot or a climate that, that's cold? Or, or would you rather, you know, go 500 years in the past or would you rather go 500 years in the future? Well, let me ask you this question this evening. You know, would you rather be alive at that time that Joshua was living, where, where you got bits and pieces of revelation from God? Uh, uh, you could see the miracles being performed. Or would you rather live now when we have all of God's word to access? Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says that he has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And I know there are some who are probably thinking it would be pretty neat to go back in Joshua's time and to see the miracles and to you know, hear God speaking directly to some of those people like Joshua and Moses. But we remember in time in Jesus's day uh, that they saw his miracles, they saw his healings, but that wasn't enough. Right. They kept coming back to Jesus and say, show us a sign. We need a sign. Right. What would you rather do? And I think that, you know, we are at a great advantage because we have the fully revealed word of God for us. Second Timothy 2.15 reminds us to be diligent, to prepare ourselves as a workman for God, working, uh, rightly handling or rightly dividing the word of truth. 
How are we doing with that verse? Uh, Let's ask that question for ourselves as well this evening. How are we doing rightly dividing the word of truth? And and if we're struggling, you know, the book of James in chapter 1, verse 5 tells us to ask God for wisdom. Right? If there are things that we just don't know and we need uh, wisdom from above, he says to ask God. Pray to God for those things. So again, counsel in God's word is expected. And we all know what happens when they fail to realize this. Uh, the third point I want to make, and this one's pretty short, but um, there are consequences to our actions. I'm sure that when Joshua made this covenant with the people, he didn't have his great, 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 great grandchildren in mind uh, when he did that. Because this is going to hurt Israel three to four hundred years later. In 2 Samuel chapter 21, uh, Saul, he actually violates this covenant, King Saul, and he puts to death some of the Gibeonites. Uh, they actually say in that verse that uh, this, this man Saul wanted to exterminate us. And so God punishes Israel at that time for three years by bringing this drought upon the land. And David asked the, the leaders, those who were remaining of the Gibeonites, uh, what he could do for them. And they told, them, told David, well, we don't want silver. We don't want gold. We don't want any of those things. And so David said, whatever you wish, I'll give to you. And so they asked for seven sons of Saul, seven descendants of Saul. Again, this is... You know, three to four hundred years uh, later uh, to be to be hung uh, in the city of Gibeah, which was the city of Saul. Well, again, our consequences have have uh, excuse me. There are consequences to our actions and uh, maybe it doesn't come to fruition three or four hundred years later. But there are those and a passage in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. That you know, we need to do a lesson on this later because we just don't have the time. But this is a verse that says, you know, the person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment of the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment of the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. You know, that doesn't mean that children, or excuse me, but you know, that doesn't mean that children will not bear the consequences of. Uh, of their parents' sins, right? Uh, 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 they're not because their their father or their mother committed such a sin that that the child will be responsible. But no, the person who sins will die. Ezekiel says, but that doesn't mean that children will bear the consequences of those things. And so again, we see those. I know that point was short, but we'll do another lesson on that at another time because I want to leave you with this final one that we must deal with our mistakes. You know, there's a little light to the end of this story of this tunnel. Israel honored the covenant they made with the Gibeonites. Uh, They did this. It was an honorable thing. Uh, They, you know what the Bible says, they let their yes be yes and their no be no. Uh, I was watching a show the other day, a a history show. Uh, It was talking about the time period right after the Civil War. You got Ulysses S. Grant, who was the president at the time, and he's making a peace treaty with the Indians. You know, and uh, again, this is right after the Civil War. And so we're branching out west. And, you know, we encounter what's known as the Panic of 1873. You know, this isn't the Great Depression. Uh, it's not going to be as bad as the Great Depression, but it's pretty bad uh, nonetheless. And this is a time when, uh, you know, America was promoting railroads, you know, going out west. And the government was paying tons of money for people to uh, build these uh, railroad tracks. And there was over 300 companies at that time. But it found, found out that there was some uh, scheming going on uh, between uh, some of the people and the government. And so a lot of people uh, panicked because of that. And it led to this, uh, 
It led to this panic, again, of 1873. Well, at the same time, gold was discovered in the Black Hills. Uh, this was where uh, President uh, Grant had the, uh, the Indians living at the time. But, uh, the, but there was gold discovered in the Black Hills. And, of course, the Americans thought that it, you know, if we got our hands on that gold, we could get ourselves out of debt. And so they, they send in General Custard uh, to go in and lead this great expedition into the land. Uh, the idea being that if they found the gold, if there's gold there, you know, we'll push the Indians aside and we will uh, use that gold to turn the economy around. You know, Grant went back on his promise. If we know the history of that account, um, it doesn't end well for either side. Uh, they didn't, uh, he didn't let his yes be yes or his no be no. But Joshua found the best way possible to correct Israel's mistake. You know, and sometimes we need to roll with the punches ourselves. Because look at this. Look at these, uh, these two verses in chapter 9, verse 23 and verse 27. Notice in verse 23. Now, therefore, you are cursed and you shall never cease being slaves, both hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. And then verse 27. But Joshua made... Them that day, hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place which he would choose. You know, they're going to be supplying the tabernacle from this point forward. Uh, The psalmist said in Psalm 84, verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of my house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. You know, we, we can see uh, the Gibeonites, although they are going to be servants of the Israelites from this point forward, they're going to be serving the Lord. They're going to be bringing the wood and the water to the house of, or to the tabernacle. And we could just think, uh, you know, we don't have any proof of this, but wonder how many of those Gibeonites converted to the God of the Israelites because of that. In the most unusual circumstances, God can do great things. The Gibeonites, again, they remind us that God expects us to keep our promises. And although we are going to make mistakes, you know, can we find the good in them? You know, as Joshua did here with them serving in the house of the Lord. Well, Joshua and the people of Israel made a deal with the enemy, uh, but they didn't allow them to keep doing what God called them to do. You know, the Gibeonites really, it's a fascinating uh, case study here. And we're reminded of a lot of different lessons uh, that, that Satan deceives and he's on the attack. That God's counsel would be sought after constantly. It should be sought after. That decisions, again, have consequences. And then finally, that we can find the positives in our mistakes. Uh, maybe the, this evening, you may be at a point in your life that uh, you've made some bad deals, made some bad decisions. Uh, you know, why not make tonight, this evening, uh, a time to correct your mistakes? As we offer the invitation, if there's anything that we can do to uh, help you in your, uh, in your walk as a Christian, we would love the opportunity to pray for you, to strengthen you uh, in front of your brothers and sisters. Or, or if you're here this evening and need to put Christ on in baptism. Let us know as together we stand and sing this song of invitation.